0: So our amazing executive producer, Lily Percy, has taught me so much about movies across the years and how movie watching can make for big, deep, fun conversation. And now she's turned this passion of hers into On Being Studios' new podcast, This Movie Changed Me. I'm really proud of it. There are new episodes every other Tuesday. You don't have to have watched the movies in advance, but if you love You've Got Mail or The Nightmare Before Christmas or Star Wars, you're already ahead. This is a fabulous audio experience. Great thoughts, laughter, a few tears, and immersive movie music and moments. If you haven't listened yet, it's time. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Stephen Batchelor. Listen to our produced show with him wherever you find your podcasts, and as always, at onbeing.org. Hello. Hello. Hi, Stephen.
1: Hi. Hi, this is, is Krista Tippett. Yes. Hi, Krista. Very nice to meet you. You
0: too. I just had an email this morning from Brian Fielding who said oh, he was, was... just <laughs> with you.
1: <laughs> no, he asked me to send his best wishes, actually.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, your name has come up so much across the years, so um, <clears throat> you've been on the list, and I'm glad we're finally doing this. Good. Um, where, where do you, you Do you live in France most of the time? I live in uh,
1: Southwest France, near mm-hmm. Bordeaux. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I'm about half. I'm on the road about half the year, teaching and talking and stuff. Okay.
0: Um, do you have any questions for me before we start? Any questions about the show? Or? None at all. Okay.
1: I'm willing to do this completely uh, without preparation.
0: All right. Well, that's great because I'm just going to. I'm just going to engage you in conversation on things you're thinking about. All the time, anyway. Um, Good. I I do I do want to say we will we will give a big shout out to the new book. Um, but it's not I don't do book interviews, um, mm-hmm. and so and I've really steeped in. I've been looking at all your work, um, going back to your early books as well. So so it's really about. To, so don't worry about – I know sometimes when people are, have been on book tour, they mm-hmm. – and I've been on those myself, and you're under instruction to plug the book. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to let you know you don't have to do that. We will do that. But I really want this to be an expansive conversation. And, of course, the new book is is a continuation and a, an evolution of things you've been writing about for a long time. So it's that sweep that I want to get into. Great. Okay. Uh, that's fine. Okay. <clears throat> okay. We good? Are we good? All right. Um. Good. Well, let's let's just plunge in. We um, I we have about ninety minutes, so we get to have a real meandering conversation and see where it takes us. Um. um so. So you grew, <laughs> you grew up in, Dundee, in Scotland. Uh, Is that right? Not no,
1: really. No. no, I was born in Dundee, in okay. Scotland, okay. but I grew up near London.
0: Near London. All right. Um. You know, I I, um, I feel that all the way through your writing, um, you you talk about doubt, doubt and questioning as a as a radical basis for spiritual life, and I I wonder if I I I, I usually ask begin my interviews by asking people about the religious or spiritual background of their childhood, however, mm-hmm. they, however they would describe that now. And I guess I, I get curious as I see that as such a thread uh, in you and through your work about whether you trace the roots of that, that reverence for doubt and questioning or a sense of the primacy of that into, you know, however you would describe the religious or spiritual background of your early mm-hmm. life.
1: I grew up uh, in a sort of humanist background My uh, family had long departed from any active involvement in the church. Um, So I didn't have any religious education. I I never went to any religious services. And um, in some ways, uh, I never really asked those kinds of questions that religion would address. I think probably this began to rise up in my life in the 1960s uh, through the counterculture, through taking uh, psychedelic drugs, uh, things like that. And at that point, too, I felt a kind of deep attraction to the Orient, to India, China. I started reading books on, on, on Zen, on Buddhism. I ended up uh, at the age of 19 in Dharamsala. In the community around the Dalai Lama, yeah, and I immediately absorbed myself in uh, in Buddhist studies.
0: But but, but you know you, you you write in places though about uh, as a child is the, the and this is oh. you know lovely language the bewildering stomach churning insecurity okay. of being alive, and I wonder. <laughs> I mean, it seems like you were you were following something. You were you were pursuing something in that. Quite dramatic move, I mean, you know these days it wouldn 't be so dramatic for someone from London or the u s to travel to Dharamsala, but it was it was you know, I mean I know that it was in the spirit of the times, but it was a very dramatic thing to do at that point
1: that 's true yeah um, yeah i I'd, I'd actually forgotten that <laughs> the, I, I, uh, I I grew up as a child who I think was quite sensitive and I was further sensitized by the fact that I grew up uh, uh, in a single parent family, which yeah. at the time was uh, very, very unusual. I mean, yeah. now it's yeah rather common unfortunately. Yeah. So I did feel different, and I attributed a lot of that to not growing up with a, a father. And this made me perhaps more introverted than I already was. And I do recall, um, I recall um, being at school, for example, and wondering why the teachers uh, never addressed the quality of our own subjectivity. In other words, mm-hmm. the, mm. uh, the kind of anxiety that I became aware of quite early on uh, that struck me as both troubling and yet somehow taboo. It wasn't something you, you talked about. Perhaps mm-hmm. if I'd gone to Sunday school or church, these issues would have been addressed. But um, I was thrown back on a kind of deep curiosity about what it meant to exist. And that, I guess, is perhaps lying at the roots of my own uh, subsequent fascination with doubt, with questioning, with astonishment, with wonder, as the very, very root of what we call spirituality or religion. I also remember lying awake at night as a child and... uh, and wondering why I couldn't stop the incessant uh, outpouring of, of thoughts and chatter, the mind seemed endlessly restless. Um, and that perhaps was a that perhaps was a a foretaste of what I would subsequently
0: know as meditation. Yes. Tell me, when you say you were immediately drawn, <coughs> captured. By Buddhism, in, uh, yeah. in immediately converted um, and and drawn in, and really gave yourself li- your life over to it um, uh, in Dharamsala and thereafter. What what can you? How do you describe what what captured you? What you've discovered there?
1: I think what impressed me most was the uh, presence uh, of the Tibetan people, who had only recently gone into exile about twelve years before, yeah. and I'd never met people like that before people who were living in great poverty, great, uh, you know, enormous uh, distress, and yet had within them a kind of a stillness, uh, a kind of radiance in a way. And not just the the lamas, but the ordinary people. I was immensely moved by that. Um, it's I'd never come across it in, in England, in Europe, where I'd grown up. Mm. And at the same time, I'm also aware that there was a high degree of... Uh, Romanticism, uh, idealization—perhaps you know—it allowed certain deep longings to come to the surface. You mean yourself? In yourself, you were in myself, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was drawn. I was just so fa- I was completely—I uh, fell in love with it.
0: Basically. Yeah, right. I think intellectually as well. Right. I mean, the, yes. the theology, the, the 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 world view, um, the tradition, the, the the richness of the tradition.
1: That's right. No, the I, I, I fortunately I think, given my my disposition, I landed in in one of the Tibetan communities where the Buddhism was not so much about mystical experience or mandalas and all those things, but it was a very rigorous, uh, intellectual, right. uh, critical tradition. Uh, That too engaged me. I wasn't being presented with something I just had to blindly believe.
0: Yeah. Although it is interesting to me um, that you 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 did connect um, with particular intensity to Tibetan Buddhism and then to Zen, and and in the spectrum of Buddhism, I mean, you know, those are the traditions. I mean, the, certainly the Tibetan tradition has a very developed supernatural. I don't know, you know, you use different words for that, but mm-hmm. um, world of heavens and hells, and yes. and uh, and a reincarnated leader, um, and then um, and Zen also um, has very very mystical aspects. So it was kind of interesting to me, given that you now. Um, you know, you you are a voice for what you call secular Buddhism or, mm-hmm. or your Buddhist atheism, that that's really where you were rooted um, in, in Buddhism and to begin with.
1: I think I realized when I got to Dharamsana that there was a, a whole experience of human life that I'd been excluded from as a child.
2: Mm.
1: As I said, I hadn't gone to church. Um, I'd not been raised in that milieu. And I think at some level, I had missed that. And so the the exotic aspects of Tibetan Buddhism, its mystical, uh, rather metaphysical uh, teachings, uh, again, filled a void within me. And so initially, I was very drawn to that whole side of the Dharma. But at the same time, and this, I think, operated as a constant tension through my uh, training, was the rather unconscious attraction to the metaphysics, the mysticism, but constantly I would return back to the emphasis on uh, reason, on the emphasis on um, men- mental and intellectual clarity. The two coexist quite happily in the Tibetan uh, mm-hmm. world. And at a certain point, I think I got the religious thing somehow out of my system a bit. And I came back, perhaps, to the sort of humanism uh, in which I'd been raised and yet now infused with a kind of Buddhist spirituality.
0: Right. There's, there's a place in your writing where you describe, I think you say that it's the closest thing you might describe having to a mystical experience mm-hmm. in Dharamsala. And I love the way you talk. About it. It says it, you said it gave no answers. It only revealed the massiveness of the question. <laughs>
1: Yes. Now, that's the point that, um, in a way, questioning became for me the the real prime source of my practice and my life. Mm-hmm. And it was an experience that came upon me. And I, I don't hesitate to use the word mystical. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was not something for which I had been at all prepared. Um, I was walking uh, in a woodland and uh, suddenly I was just overwhelmed Uh, by the sheer surprise that this was happening at all. Uh, And it struck me with a... It was like a visceral blow to the whole body. It was a deeply emotional um, opening uh, to life in a way I'd never even suspected before. Mm. And yet it wasn't uh, presented to me as a set of solutions or answers to, you know, human questions, but rather it um, exposed what i still feel to be the utter primacy of the uh, the questioning the doubting but it's not an intellectual thing it takes it seizes one's whole body mind yeah. uh, with a uh, an undeniable uh, sense of uh, power really and i pursue that ever since and that still animates my practice very much today
0: yeah and i think when you say your astonishment that this was here it was it was everything that the the fact of being alive, the, the forest you were in, your mm-hmm. own being is that in addition
1: no, to a, that, yeah that's absolutely right. it mm-hmm. wasn't a subjective experience, mm-hmm. I mean of course, at some level it was because mm-hmm. it was I was conscious of that, but it was a, it was a, the, the whole world, my whole sense of being in the world before the separation into subject and object uh, somehow revealed itself in this new light.
0: Mm-hmm. And you use the language of coming out as a secular Buddhist. <laughs> um, talk a little bit about that, to why it feels that way, and I guess that's also you. That's also a reflection on the reactions you received. You've received across the years. Yeah,
1: I've um, since I started writing, uh, which is really about sharing my own thoughts with uh, my public, I suppose. Um, I've toyed with a number of terms to try to describe the kind of Buddhism that I'm trying to articulate. I've used the word existential. I've used the word agnostic, atheist, and now I'm exploring the implications of this sense of secular. What I'm I'm looking for is a way to um, recover what I think is very much at the heart of the Buddhist tradition that I don't think is religious uh, in the sense of a formal religious set of beliefs and practices, but once again goes back to seeking a language to address these primary questions. And I feel in many ways uh, the approach of what we might understand as the teaching of the historical Buddha is in some ways closer to Hellenistic philosophy, say the skeptics or the Epicureans or the Stoics, who again we don't think of as religious, but nonetheless these were communities of men and women who took these sorts of questions with utmost seriousness and developed a way of thinking, a way of practicing, a way of living together communally uh, that to me resonate very closely with the uh, early Buddhist communities around Gautama. And so what I'm seeking is both to recover something of the early tradition and to not assume that it need take an overtly religious form but can find a voice that speaks to us in our, sec- in a, in, in our utterly secular condition. And that may not be the language I'll continue using, but right. I do find it's useful and I also find it, uh, it, it gets a very... Um, it, people respond to that.
0: You know, I, I just I just wanna put it out there and and I know you are very aware of this yourself, that there's a very loud echo in in, in the way you are um, I don't know, I don't wanna call it a critique of Buddhism, but mm-hmm. the way you are re examining Buddhism. With movements in monotheistic tradition and certainly Christianity, you know, you you talk about the the historical Buddha, and I and I and I and I don't know that people in uh, American culture or European culture, as much as they are learning about Buddhism, um, are, are possibly aware of this kind of discussion happening. But you know, they might be aware of you know something like the Jesus seminar, which mm-hmm. got a lot of uh, attention in recent years, which was. And you know, you, you the language you use about you know looking at the canon, excavating the discourses in the life of Buddha, you know, a historical critical analysis of text and tradition. I mean, there's a there's a long tradition of that in Christianity, um, and so part of it, you know, let's see, you know, one here's, here's one thing you wrote in After Buddhism: we we may need to unlearn Buddhist dogma to discover the Dharma. To, to discover the Dharma afresh. Uh-huh. But, but we may also need to unlearn the stories that Buddhism has constructed about its own past if we are to gain a three-dimensional and nuanced account of its history. So, so how would you begin to tell or retell the story of who the Buddha was, what he was like, and, and how the distinction you see between this historical Buddha and the Buddha that you are um, uncovering?
1: Okay. Well, I have, uh, as you seem to uh, suggest, been strongly influenced by movements within Christian theology. Much of my thought has been influenced by the work of people like Paul Tillich, uh, more recently figures like Don Cupid – the work of the Jesus Seminar likewise, and I found that these um, thinkers um, and scholars have given me tools uh, to to apply a similar approach uh, to the historical Buddha and uh, his uh, earliest teachings. And this is a movement that has really not yet taken off in Buddhism to the extent it has uh, in Christianity. And I think it. I think we are offered extraordinarily helpful tools uh, to apply uh, a similar understanding um, of the Buddha, his early teachings, and Buddhism does present the Buddha as an almost divine, godlike figure with rather peculiar uh, physical characteristics. It uh, presents the Buddha's teaching as a very well worked out, quite sophisticated uh, metaphysical theory with different realms of existence and reincarnation and so forth and so on. But when you go back to the, the texts that are um, the earliest source we have, um, that predates the arising of the different buddhist schools the different orthodoxies and so on we start to get a rather different uh, sense of what's going on the the pali canon which is the earliest collection we we uh, have to work with when you read these texts you really find yourself in a in a very human world uh, the buddha and his uh, followers the different uh, Kings and other figures he interacts with um, inhabit a, a, a quirky, uh, rather tawdry um, human world mm-hmm. uh, that is uh, very much like the world that we know today. Uh, it's not a, a mythicized world like you may find in, say, the Ramayana or the, some of the Hindu classics, and it's not the world that you find in later Buddhist sutras like the Lotus Sutra and so on. But it's a it's an it's a quirky human world, and you find that so many of the Buddha's teachings are not um, uh, uh, stated as kind of uh, final dogmatic truths, but they emerge in the uh, interactions he has with the people of his time. Mm. And uh, they're dialogic, a bit like uh, how Socrates worked, for example. So you get a lot of uh, inconsistency uh, because different people, he responds to their questions in different ways. And uh, that too provides a, a glimpse Uh, not only into his historical world, but his way of teaching. Uh, Of course, there are themes that repeat uh, again and again, but they're nuanced and um, phrased in ways that uh, speak to particular situations. So the more that I've... Delved into this, uh, the more I find that the the carapace of uh, of the divinization of the Buddha, the the met- metaphysical theories, begins to somehow fall away, and one recovers uh, a deeply human uh, uh, setting and a deeply human discourse.
0: Here, here are some things you've said about the Buddha what is truly original in the Buddha's teaching, I discovered, was his secular outlook. Or or Mm -hmm. here you said, the genius of the Buddha lay in his imagination. (laughs) So open those statements up for me.
2: Okay.
1: Well, um, I I have been criticized, and I think it's a legitimate criticism, that um, am I perhaps simply finding what I'm already looking for? Do I uh, which, which is a human pick?
0: inclination, after all. Yeah, one of those quirky things about us, right?
1: <laughs> it is. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I, 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 I do have to be cautious and careful uh, in not simply projecting my own preformed ideas of what Buddhism is and then s- miraculously finding that uh, in the Buddhist teaching. In the same way, I think someone once... Uh, Uh, Said about the Jesus seminar that these people are like people who look into a deep well and see their own reflection. And see their own
0: reflection. That's right.
1: So uh, I'm aware of those criticisms, but uh, as you suggest, uh, uh, this is a natural human way to enter into a dialogue with these texts. Uh, As a practicing Buddhist, I'm not interested in separating myself from these discourses by some kind of scientific objectivity that uh, pretends to somehow see things in a cold clinical way. These discourses uh, are engaging for me because they speak to me. And I think this has always been the case. In every situation where Buddhism has gone into another culture, be it China, Tibet, Japan, it speaks to the needs of those people at those times and enters a kind of dialogue. And obviously, the Passages, The teachings that speak to those people are the ones that meet their particular needs at their time. Yeah. And the, um, the power of Buddhism uh, to somehow survive is not because it's preserved a certain fixed set of dogmas or whatever, but actually uh, has managed again and again to reinvent itself. In other words, Buddhism's survival has to do with the capacity it has to trigger imaginative transformations amongst those who are drawn to and engage with its uh, ideas and with its practices. So what's going on in modernity uh, is really no different in principle to what went on when it encountered the shamanistic culture of Tibet and Tibetan Buddhism necessarily carries that uh context very visibly or the more Taoist uh, culture of China and Japan which Zen of course is yeah. you know very infused with that so um in that sense uh I really feel that what I'm doing and also you know, not just myself but I think uh, a whole generation of us are struggling to somehow articulate uh, not a cold objective account of what the Buddha was or said but what his teachings somehow have to say to us in our condition, how they address the needs of our own uh, suffering humanity
0: yeah. so i you know as you say there's <clears throat> there's some. Um there's, you know, there's much. To, so what what the Jesus Seminar did, and I, you know, I'm, I'm always aware that I'm our audiences are very large and expansive, and some people will be steeped in these ideas, and some people, for yeah. some people, they'll be very mm-hmm. new. So, so I think it's just worth, you know, you know, saying you know, kind of what the Jesus Seminar did, for example, is uh, and, and, and and which is similar to what you're doing is kind of separating out what seemed to be. Culturally based stories and teachings from what seem to be what we can say might have might have come down to us uh, might have been carried forward more in their pure form, and also separating out uh, the, some a lot of the transcendence, the magic, the miracles. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are certainly, as you say, there are ways to criticize the way in which that was done. But I I think that. Something that you're pointing out that in some ways stands in contrast to that <clears throat> and is part of that process is um, the limitations of belief-based systems of thought also of reducing. Uh, and I think that that's something we tend to do with all religion in, in Western culture, especially when we talk about it in public. It's like this belief versus that belief. Mm. And that's just really the... Surface, especially if something like Buddhism, that's it's where it's hard to talk about lists of beliefs to begin with. that um, you talk about, I mean, here's something you said. Just as Christianity has struggled to explain how an essentially good and loving God could have created a world with so much suffering and justice and horror, so Buddhism has struggled to account for the presence of joy, delight, and enchantment in a world that is supposedly nothing but a veil of tears. I mean, I know I've changed the subject a little bit here, but it's it's mm-hmm. another way of struggling to get at the heart of what's going on in the tradition.
1: No, that's right. The, I think belief is the big problem, yeah. frankly. Uh, not, med, not belief as a kind of hypothesis, well, maybe this is true, I'll give it a go, but belief in the sense that you know, this is the way reality works. And that often calls upon supernaturalistic type explanations, be they theistic or be they the law of karma that operates over lifetimes. And this becomes increasingly the kind of uh, public face of uh, let's say buddhism and a buddhist is therefore understood as someone who holds certain metaphysical views the kinds of views that you can't easily affirm nor can you write them off uh, uh, simply either but i feel that religion caters to people's need for self- religion caters to people's need for security Uh, We do live in a highly uh, contingent, uh, Mm -hmm. unpredictable, changing, tragic world, and religion provides us with some sort of stable basis on which we can begin to make sense of all of that. So I don't, you know, I recognize that such consolation is, of course, much needed in our world, but I think that's achieved at the cost of somehow obscuring what is radical, what is original. Um, what is perhaps deeply unsettling Mm -hmm. in what the Buddha is saying. I Mm -hmm. don't think the Buddha is actually interested in offering us a consolatory uh, view of the world that will just make us able to, that will make us better able to cope with our lives. I think he really wants us to deeply engage with our lives without uh, premising that engagement on certain non-negotiable beliefs.
0: Yeah, and and, and and one of the things that you point out um, is also that when we try to reduce uh, trad- these traditions to belief, it actually distances people from the immediacy of the mystery of life. And, mm-hmm. of you know, and you talk about how Koreans and also, you know, actually cultivate and Zen in particular cultivates virtues of perplexity and astonishment and, and wonderment and, and in fact doubt.
2: So that, right. so that at
0: the heart of the tradition itself, there is, there is a contrast to that, to that thing, that, that <laughs> dynamic you're describing.
1: That's absolutely right. And, and I suspect the same is also true in Christianity, mm-hmm. uh, when you go back to the actual life of Jesus and what he struggled with in his life. But Zen particularly uh, was uh, also – Zen was a movement that emerged in China about a thousand or more years after the Buddha. And I think it actually sought, again, to rebel – against these consoling certainties of scholarship and belief and return to what the Buddha's own experience was when he left, supposedly, this luxurious life he was brought up in and goes outside the palace, sees a sick person, an aging person, a corpse. That's where the existential question, the sense of mystery, the sense of astonishment, the sense of... of of deep, deep curiosity and bafflement begin. And his awakening, uh, I can only understand, as some kind of resolution to those primary existential questions. And Zen seeks to recover that. Buddhism tends to become uh, a, a, a set of answers to these questions. And the questions then slowly, but perhaps inevitably, slip away and get forgotten. So Zen comes back. And the great attraction to me, to Zen Buddhism, after my time with the Tibetans, was precisely this recovery of this primacy of questioning. Mm. And so our meditations in Korea were, you know, for three months, twice a year, we would just sit in a darkened room and ask ourselves, what is this? And rest with that question. (laughs) Nothing else. I loved it. It so a, I mean marvelous. I know I know
0: that the nature of what we're talking about defies words. But can you just can you speak <laughs> a little bit more about that experience? What is it?
1: What, what is it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, uh, the words, the form of words, and they could just as well be "Who am I?" or there's many, many Zen koans that try to get at the same thing. What is it? Is useful because it's not culturally. Um, colored by some episode in Chinese history or something. Mm. What is this starts out as a form of words. You repeat it to yourself when your mind has achieved a degree of stillness and quiet uh, in a more meditative frame. But once the words begin to sink in, once they the, this question becomes a kind of almost a physical sensation. It begins to Mm. infuse your whole body mind. Uh, At that point, you can let go of the actual form of words and you can focus far more on simply infusing your consciousness of whatever is going on in that moment. Uh, With this deep sense of uh, curiosity, puzzlement, bafflement, it's so difficult to find the right word. But it is really about opening up to life as profoundly mysterious. And rather than trying to solve that mystery, it's actually about penetrating that mystery. And when you penetrate a mystery, it doesn't become less mysterious. It becomes, if anything, more mysterious. So this source of questioning and doubt uh, is something that, uh, as you go into it, uh, only intensifies, only becomes, in a sense, more pronounced. But that doesn't lead you into a kind of a chaotic bafflement. It actually becomes a still, uh, I think, rather um, serene uh, relationship that you begin to cultivate with life as such, hmm. and that everything, every detail of life, every person you meet, every situation you find yourself in, uh, is one that, uh, in a sense, is uh, is deeply surprising, deeply odd. It goes, ab- it lets go of your, you know, your habitual views and opinions about this, that, or the other, uh, have less firm ground to stand on.
0: I, I, I don't even know if this fits, but I, I have to say when I. <laughs> I read you and hear you just talking about surprise, I was thinking about the great Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Are you you're familiar with Heschel? Uh, I've
1: Not really. I, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm aware of who he is, but I, I can't see. I mean,
0: think. I, I think he also he, he also had, he talked about depth theology, and he also had this sense of mystery at the core, which which in itself was orthodox, and also also through everything that it, it also, um, in, in its way, challenged everything that is orthodox, mm-hmm. at, both at the same time. Um, and he, t- he would talk about surprise as a as a spiritual virtue, right? So here's something. He said, I would say about individuals, an individual dies when he ceases to be surprised. I am surprised every mm. morning that I see the sunshine again. When I see an act of evil, I'm not accommodated. I'm still surprised. That's why I'm against it, why I can hope against it. We must learn how to be surprised, not to adjust ourselves. I am the most maladjusted person in society, (laughs) which is really what you're saying about the Buddha also did not, you know, that there's something, that part of what these traditions are for is to unsettle us in ways that that we need.
1: Yeah, yeah, that that quotation is, is wonderful. I've not heard it before, but that's exactly what, uh, he says it far better than I can say it. I, say. <laughs> I think that I think that, that is just wonderful. Uh, I remember also um, after my experience in the forest in Dharamsala, I found very little in Indian Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist texts that really spoke of this. I was mm. kind of surprised, as it were. And that led me to actually seek uh, uh, insight as to what had gone on in me at that point uh, in non-Buddhist traditions. And one of the first texts that really spoke to me in this way was... Uh, Martin Buber's um, I and Thou. Yeah. Uh, again, this is known because this is famous because of this relationship, uh, the centrality of this relationship. But there are other passages in that book in which he, too, uh, taps into this deep sense of puzzlement, astonishment, surprise. I found it also in the work of uh, the Catholic philosopher Gabriel Marcel. Mm. I found it in Heidegger. Uh, I find, And then you find it even in Socrates, you know, the yeah. source of philosophy is wonder and I was rather um, I was rather uncomfortable with the fact that the Buddhism that I was engaged with at that point didn't seem to have much room for that. And that's one of the reasons that I was drawn into Zen, because they emphasize it, make it very much the central point.
0: And an emphasis that you, I feel, are just con- living more and more passionately into in your work is is then this enlivening interplay that might seem counterintuitive on the outside Mm -hmm. between this kind of wonder and surprise and action. I mean, you you know, you say, above all, secular Buddhism is something not to believe, to do not to believe in. It's a lived piety.
1: That's right.
0: So you reinterpret the Four Noble Truths kind of getting it, you know, as rather than beliefs as for the Four Noble Tasks um, at the center of Buddhism.
1: That's how, um, yeah, that's, I find uh, a very, uh, has been a very rich way of recovering what I think is uh, the root of the Buddhist tradition. The very word noble truth is highly suggestive of uh, statements that cannot be challenged, uh, that we are, in a sense, called upon to believe. Whereas when you look at the first discourse of the Buddha more more critically, um, you realise that, you know, noble truths look as though, it looks as though noble truth was a term that was uh, probably came along at a later date. The sermon concludes uh, not with the affirmation of these truths, but with the Buddha declaring that. Uh, Uh, His awakening was that of having accomplished a set of tasks, each different in its own way in relation to what we call these four truths. So the first task is that of actually embracing and fully coming to terms with the condition you are in. And that to me would once again include an embrace of the world's profound mystery and strangeness. But what I like about the four task model Based upon and in a sense just a kind of a riff on the four truths, is that it leads. It starts with a sense of engagement with the mysterious, a uh, profoundly tragic, in a sense, uh, life that we find ourselves in. But then it uh, unfolds uh, sequentially uh, to an experience of uh, non-reactive stillness, which again uh, is again I think the. The most appropriate uh, and most sensitized uh, human awareness of the of the mystery of life again, but that is not seen as an end in itself. It's not a mystical experience that somehow resolves your life, but it is an experience uh, which profound. It is an experience that provides you with another uh, foundation on which to act, in which to mm. uh, see the world, yourself, to think to speak, to act, to work, what the Buddha calls the Eightfold Path. I see that really as what the teaching and the practice is uh, aiming at. It's, fi- it's creating the conditions whereby we can embark on a way of life that is not dictated by our instinctive reactivity, our habits, our fears, and so forth and so on, but uh, stems from an openness an inner openness that is unconditioned by those forces and that allows the freedom to think differently, to act differently, to respond more fully, and in doing so, to uh, allow uh, the human person to flourish, uh, to, 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 to realize more fully the potentials that each one of us has.
0: You know, I'm so aware at this moment in time that somehow I feel we are, and I would even use the word evolving um as a species with and science is a companion in this um and and spiritual life in its all its modern fluidity is is part of this to 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 make statements or to 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 mm-hmm. be aware of ourselves um and, and to and to draw on these traditions with a new vitality um and yet uh it's such a paradoxical moment because when you talk about this quality of non reactive stillness, not as an end in itself but as a as a way that can help, can lead us into a way of flourishing can can be discerning and directive of the right action, right living, which is a Buddhist phrase mm-hmm. So much of culture conspires against you know non-reactive stillness, <laughs> um, not necessarily maliciously, but I mean I I mean I'm talking about how we are you know struggling to kind of live with these technologies and also looking at the world writ large and and uh, you know non-reactive stillness is the opposite of uh, the reaction to uh, you know a terrorist attack in Paris mm-hmm. or or things that happen uh, closer to home that are less dramatic but equally devastating. You know what I mean? We're d- it's such yes, a complicated no, it, time. It, mm-hmm.
1: No, I, I, I completely agree. The, um, we, we live in a world where we're bombarded with information that we are pressed to produce and to achieve in a way that's uh, almost uh, violent at times. Um, and I, at the same time, though, uh, what has really surprised me uh, in my 40 years of involvement in Buddhism is the sudden uh, embracing uh, in the mainstream culture of the practice of mindfulness. Now, yeah. this, of course, is an essential Buddhist uh, meditation. Uh, that until recently was the you know practiced by a handful of people um, like myself in India and in retreat centers and suddenly it 's become mainstream now what 's going on here? This is a movement that, in its very essence um, is uh, questioning this uh, frenzy of activity uh-huh. that uh-huh. our culture so is so embedded in I think it 's in a sense timely that People are looking for something like a non reactive stillness if if that word is uh, is helpful, mm. and mindfulness allows them the very simple possibility of stopping, just pausing uh, opening up a gap in their thoughts and their feelings um, and this I think is um Perhaps arising at this time because we are becoming conscious as a community, as a society, uh, as a human community, uh, of, uh, of, this, of of this of this stressful uh, overload that uh, is so is is, is is so demanding, and I think so undermining in many ways. It mm-hmm. prevents us, I think, from really living fully. And I think you know people are a sensitive creatures, they, they intuit this, they sense this, they don't want to have a life that's just dictated by these uh, forces. Mm. So um, on the one hand, yes, what the Dharma is teaching, but I think this is also true in terms of most of our religious traditions, they're actually uh, standing up to the uh, drives of our, um, of our nature and offering uh, another way of living. I don't think Buddhism is unique in that, no. but it does have uh, methodologies, uh, practices, uh, that can be quite readily converted into somewhat uh, secular forms without, I think, losing something that is uh, essential to them. And um, it's quite remarkable the to the extent to which this has been picked up. Um, you
0: know, I, I wonder... Um i I always hesitate to define the dharma, just the word dharma, because mm-hmm. it's kind of again defies definition. So I just wanted to just. I just want to insert this. You know how how would you define <laughs> the word? <laughs> <When> well, you...
1: <laughs> uh,
0: uh,
1: as you notice, I I don't try to translate it. Yeah. Uh, the word literally means something like law. Um, the Buddha uses it um, to refer both to his teaching, uh, but he also and I think more importantly, uh, uses it to describe a certain a sensibility to life as a whole. And in his uh, core definitions of the term, uh, it, re- it it is revealing both of a kind of an awareness of the conditional or the contingent, the the lawful causalities of life itself that do not require to be underpinned by, let's say, a, a divine intelligence or something like that. A sort of natural lawfulness, which is the basis of, our, uh, of, 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 of ethical awareness in becoming more conscious of how our thoughts lead to words, lead to deeds, lead to consequences, and to become much more attuned to this... Uh, this kind of causality, this moral causality in our lives. But the other way in which he uses the word dharma is as uh, a way of referring to this non-reactive space of uh, nirvana. Again, nirvana is one of these terms that has generated a whole... It's supernatural, Mm -hmm. it's somehow transcendent, mystical, and so on. But basically, nirvana means a non-reactive state of mind a state of mind that is not driven or compelled by our attachments, by our fears, by our hatreds, an inner serenity and stillness and quietness that is not achievable at the end of years and years and lifetimes of lifetimes of practice, but is actually imminent. There are strong suggestions in the early canon that the Buddha understood nirvana to be a capacity that is imminent within each person in each moment. The capacity to be non-reactive is how I would describe it. So the Dharma is a non-reactive awareness of the conditional nature of life that operates according to certain causal laws, principles that can be observed and then learned from and then understood uh, in such a way that, uh, you know, human life can flourish more
2: fully.
0: I, I experience you also too. To continue to be in a very vital and creative relationship with tradition, mm-hmm. including the tradition that has transcendent uh, aspects. I mean, you you revere the Dalai Lama and have learned. You know, you speak about how much you've learned from him across the years. And but there's no no greater embodiment of the um, of the, uh, the you know the supernatural. A belief system of um, of Tibetan Buddhism in particular, mm-hmm. um, and but I, I sense you choosing to live in that place of um, of of relationship and and even reverence for that. Um, I mean, you've talked. To, you said Alain de Baton, who I also had on the show, who you know suggested in the future we might have atheist cathedrals. <laughs> yes. but you said you know you think we should that you 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 think the holy places including the holy places of the past, are necessary and, and to be honored. Is that correct?
1: That's true. I, I, I realize that sits, perhaps for some, uncomfortably with some of the other things I write, which have a very sort of secular, pared-down feel to them. But one of the things that I greatly uh, cherish is uh, pilgrimage. Mm. And uh, pretty much every year for the last few years, I've been going back to India primarily, and visiting uh, these uh, ancient sites. Uh, Buddhism, of course, no longer really exists in India, but there's some wonderful um, places, both those where the Buddha lived and, and taught We've now, you know, und- identified these places, we can visit them. And also sites of ancient Buddhist monasteries in India, such as Ajanta and elsewhere. And I find, um, particularly perhaps as a somewhat intellectual person, that actually physically, going to these places that carry these memories, let's say. I don't see this in a weird mystical way of vibrations or something like that. But they bring us back to the earth. They bring us back to the concrete situations in which uh, traditions and people that we admire uh, lived and worked. And, of course, we do this in a secular way too. I mean, people go and visit, uh, where, let's say, Montaigne's Tower, Uh, People will do a sort of pilgrimage to that.
2: Hmm.
1: Uh, I think it's a part of our spirituality uh, that has to do with the need somehow to connect uh, these values, which are somewhat abstract in a way, with something concrete. And I find that, again, it's somewhat difficult to explain. But when I find myself in these places and I sit quietly in such places and I bring to mind what has occurred in these places in the past. It connects me to the tradition um, in a in a nonverbal way uh, that is somehow a kind of literal earthing of my practice. Mm. And likewise when I go to Asia, to Buddhist countries in Asia, I'm entirely at ease with going to temples and monasteries and participating in the daily rituals and ceremonies. Um, In some sense, I like that precisely because it takes me out of my critical mind and it puts me into a more, let's say, emotional uh, relationship with these uh, traditions I admire. But I must say that when I find myself trying to uh, replicate such practices here in the modern West, uh, it doesn't quite work uh, in the same way. I think, nonetheless, we do need to be open to the fact that we're not just looking for a philosophy of life.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We're looking to create uh, spaces, uh, spaces where we can come together as strangers and publicly celebrate what we value most deeply. And I think Alain de Botton's idea of atheist cathedrals, one might you know, think of that as slightly tongue-in-cheek, but I think he has a very important point. I think we need spaces, we need communal spaces that are not, um, in a sense, overly inflected with our traditional religious traditions, but allow um, people to congregate, uh, perhaps in silence, perhaps by reciting poetry or prayer or whatever it might be, um, just to recover that sense of human belonging. To me, spirituality can never be fully realized as a solitary, um, personal endeavor, something that goes on in the privacy of your soul. But to be fully fleshed, it needs to be embedded in uh, living relationships with others. Uh, Not just friends, uh, people you like, but actually people who, at a deep level, share your aspirations, uh, share your concerns, your values. And we need spaces in which to do that. And uh, I, 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 feel, I think it's a great tragedy that churches uh, all over Europe and America now stand empty. Yeah. It seems to be such a, a waste of space. The locked doors, they, you won't even let people into some of the great churches in, in Europe now. Uh, these spaces yeah. somehow need to be revived. And if not, then some other kind of space needs to evolve.
0: I, I do experience in the States, I experience as you say churches that used to be hubs of life in downtowns which are no longer centers and but that they are you know <clears throat> in many cases rediscovering what that space is mm. for and um and it being very much about care and be, you know being a place of community and and in some mm-hmm. ways taking Taking the institutions back to the heart of practice, right of that lived piety. Um, I I kept I keep thinking, uh, you know, as you're speaking about recreating, in a sense, you know, in being tethered to tradition and yet in 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 important senses reinventing, re- um, adapting for a new age. I keep thinking of a conversation I had <clears throat> with the late um, Yaroslav Pelikan, who was just one of the great uh thinkers of Christian one of the great scholars mm-hmm. of Christian tradition and in fact before he died um he did it he did this monumental study of creeds across time and the globe one thing he said um is that you know he pointed out you know so, th- so this gets at kind of what's the danger of Creating a new secular Buddhism, right? Because um, the, the human condition remains involved. I mean, he he said the only tra- the only alternative to tradition is bad tradition. But <laughs> but what he meant by that is that tradition has this heft. I mean, it yes. has its it has its problems. Right to state it mildly, but it's some it's it's a work of generations, and our traditions hold great beauty. And wisdom, and he said, "You know, you can say that you're that you're throwing the old creed out, but as soon as you start creating that new community according to your vision, you do in fact start creating a new creed. And the danger is that it cannot have the gravitas um, or the wisdom of, mm-hmm. of what came before. I mean, this is this something you think about?
1: I think about this a lot, um, and I find myself existing in a constant tension." between my rootedness, uh, in, in my case, the Buddhist tradition, um, going back very much to what I think of as its source. And I see that source as a living source. And I, I embed myself very much and I, I identify very much with that tradition. Uh, many of my critics would be quite happy for me to stop calling myself a Buddhist, and even some of. People, some of those who who like my work uh, feel that the Buddhism gets in the way, uh, but I disagree profoundly with that. Um, the, the rootedness in tradition is 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 central to me, and I see Buddhist tradition, I suspect like other traditions also um as not something which is static and fixed and somehow uh, preserved in formaldehyde but it is something that is alive and it uh, it evolves and it changes over time i believe that that change is not something that can be speeded up uh, with all of our modern technologies mm. and access to information i think of buddhism as more like there's an not organism. an app for that no, not yet, <laughs> although they're working on them. mean, right. uh, even the apps, which will come, no doubt. Mm-hmm. In fact, they already exist. Uh, I just think are the ways in which people can access uh, the wisdom of these traditions in yeah. ways that they're used to doing you know, so many other things now. Uh, so in, in, the, in some sense, um, I find it helpful to think of uh, being rooted in a tradition without being stuck in a tradition that uh, uh, if you think of a tree, a tree has its roots in the tradition, and yet the deeper those roots are, the more, in a sense, uh, solid and stable can be the plant or the tree that then is supported on the surface of the earth. So rootedness in tradition um, is crucial, and uh, the danger, of course, is that in our attempt to somehow reform reformulate uh, the teachings or our understanding of the founding figures, or perhaps even to dispense with some of the the key doctrines of traditional Buddhism, such as reincarnation, different mm. realms of existence, and so forth and so on. We risk, as it were, severing ourselves from that tradition and uh, embarking on something which really has very shallow, if any, real roots. And I know that uh, many Buddhists feel that my work is somehow... Uh, uh, maybe going too far in that kind of direction. So I'm very alert to those uh, concerns uh, because they're not just concerns of others, they're concerns that I I share too. So um, I find myself very much in a sort of an ongoing conversation, a dialogue with this tradition, and I try to keep that alive by recovering um, early source materials and also valuing particular doctrines and philosophies that have occurred in China and Tibet and elsewhere. But I do feel, uh, quite passionately, uh, that uh, uh, we we need another kind of language in order to articulate this tradition in ways that speak to our, uh, our sense of modernity, of the kind of creatures we are now in a world informed so much by the natural sciences, a sense of being... Sentient creatures who have evolved on the surface of this planet that's spinning around this sun. This is a worldview quite different from that in which Buddhism has uh, grown up.
0: Right, right. And right.
1: Uh, we can't just write that off and pretend it hasn't happened. Uh, that is, you know, that is our cosmos. That is the order of life that we inhabit now. And uh, if Buddhism can't address that condition, if it insists on perpetuating, Uh, the cosmos of ancient India, uh, frankly, I think it's only going to speak to a a relatively small number of uh, people. And yet I think there is so much more in the tradition that can be, um, I think, really a a, a genuine contribution outside of the Buddhist world into the wider community of of human beings everywhere, really.
0: You know, you... um you have an interesting dialogue with yourself and in your writing about, let's say, karma. The doctrine of karma is something that doesn't you you can't reconcile with with, uh-huh. with biology, with science as we know it, with with our cosmology, um, and it the, the, that it is ba- the, the the aspect of it that it is that is founded on an idea of rebirth. Um, mm-hmm. At the same time, as you say, you know, you could, you could. Prove that rebirth happens, but you wouldn't prove the cosmology because the deeper point of the doctrine of karma is that it, it, it is a theory of cosmic justice.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That long, what is the Martin Luther King Jr. phrase? The arc, the the arc of history, right? The long arc of history, the moral arc bends mm. towards justice. And I mean, it's, it's a I mean, karma is is, an ex, is is an is a way of saying that, and so. Interestingly, the very complex cosmology that we have through science now um, also presents ways to think about cosmic justice, uh, the the way actions in one generation penetrate, even the genetics of, follow, of following mm-hmm. generations. Um, so, I mean, you said somewhere I think science is bringing the dharma down to earth, actually fine-tuning our moral sense. That may have been me paraphrasing. But <laughs> that's another thats another fascinating thing about the moment we inhabit, isn't it?
1: It is. And um, <sighs> Buddhists often think that karma and rebirth are almost somehow inseparable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a mistake. Um, reincarnation is really a doctrine that is shared by all Indian religions. Um I don't think we. I think it's very difficult for people to uh, to make much sense of that today, uh, when we understand how our who we are um, is so much the product of our biological evolution, uh, the kind of complexity of our our brains. To, to to posit some kind of spiritual entity, some X factor, that can magically somehow survive physical death is, is for many people very difficult. Now, of course, there may be something to it. I, I, I don't really know. But the the crucial point is that even were we able, it, let's say science somehow demonstrates that there is reincarnation. Yeah. They discover, well, hey, it, it, this is true. It doesn't actually make much difference unless we can somehow uh, uh, understand that it also uh, participates in this Cosmic justice, as it were. In other words, you can have the sense of justice through um, understanding how our actions, as individuals, as communities, today, will bear will how our actions as individuals and communities today will bear fruit after our death, and we know this very much now through yes. the whole awareness of climate change, of global catastrophe that might. Be in the offing in the future that won't actually affect you and me. We'll be long gone. But we feel a much deeper sense of moral responsibility for those generations who will follow us and not just people, but also animals, uh, all forms of life all on right. this earth. So I think that is our cosmos. That is our cosmology today. And I feel that that is entirely adequate uh, for an understanding of... Uh, of karma, of which just really means action that has consequences. Uh, it's in, it's it, that to me is enough. Um, I don't need to be around uh, as Stephen in some future life uh, to witness those uh, <laughs> okay. consequences. My concern, really, as a as, as a as a conscious concerned person, is to act in such a way that uh, what I do. Uh, will not uh, give rise to suffering for future generations and that to me uh, is uh, is a central importance in how we rethink the idea of karma of action and its effects uh, today and rebirth we can politely put to one side it doesn't really make uh, it doesn't really add anything of any great importance or significance
0: you, you've you been speaking of a phrase for a while, and it's the final chapter in your book, in your, your newest book, After Buddhism, um, this notion of a culture of awakening. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit about that.
1: Okay. Um, th- this idea first sort of came to mind when I started to ask myself the question, is Buddhism a religion in the conventional sense? And if it's not a religion, then what is it? and this gave rise to the idea that it's 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 a culture and of course all religions are embedded in in some sort of culture but i'd like to put the emphasis more on the culture which might have religious elements within it but to emphasize that that a culture is a uh, a culture arises out of communities that share common values and practices, and over time, they generate um, uh, a common sense of what matters in life, a common uh, ethical, aesthetic, um, philosophical sense of the world. Uh, They live communally uh, according to uh, similar principles. And there is a beautiful parable in the early Buddhist texts where the Buddha sees his eightfold path, his way of life, as leading not to nirvana which is the traditional view, but leading to the rebuilding of a city. And uh, that to me is, is a very, very valuable uh, source for thinking of Buddhism as a culture. I like to think, and again, I might be wrong, but uh, the, the Buddha was concerned not with founding another religion. He was concerned to establish a set of norms which are enacted through the Eightfold Path that would give rise to another kind of civilization. Um, That might be rather grandiose today to seek for another civilization. But a culture, I think, is something that actually is emerging in, uh, let's say, modernity. I think in America, particularly, when I come here to teach and to uh, lead courses and so on, I become very much aware that over the last 30, 40 years, uh, a a Buddhist culture is emerging. Mm. uh, And it's inflecting not only formal Buddhist centers, but also we find it reflected in literature, in poetry, in music, in the arts in general, in philosophy. Buddhist ideas are beginning to sort of infiltrate into our wider sense of uh, life uh, in modernity. America is quite distinctive here. There are many uh, uh, prominent uh, artists from different disciplines who uh, self-identify as Buddhists. We don't find that so much in Europe, for example. And also in America, you have founding figures, people like Thoreau, Emerson, William James, uh, who had somehow consciously somehow broken with the history of European tradition and had sought – something which is so much about the founding of this country, uh, to think anew, to think afresh, to draw from sources other than those of the Christian West. So I feel that the, the ground is very ripe here in this country for the emergence of a Buddhist culture um, in which, although there can be you know, Buddhists of different traditions with their own particular communities and beliefs and so on, there's something that transcends that uh Tricycle Magazine, for example, mm-hmm. is, is a non-denominational um, journal that, uh, in a sense, articulates these broader cultural values of Buddhism rather than seeks to privilege or promote the beliefs of a particular school. Um, so I feel very heartened uh, that this is happening. And likewise, I see this advent of mind- mindfulness that is spreading so rapidly as a, another indicator of what Buddhism is is providing for us is not a, a religious belief, but a kind of cultural inspiration. How that will play out, of course, we don't know. But I do feel it's almost assuming now uh, a kind of unstoppable momentum,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that I find very, very uh, validating uh, in terms of the work I've been doing over the last years.
0: Yeah, you, know, you, you use the language of spiritual technology, and and I I do as well. And I I think that you know mindfulness is kind of um becoming this spiritual technology that people are learning to apply but mm-hmm. i mean i know also and i know you're as more aware of this than i am that um there's certainly a um an understandable discomfort among you know pr- deep buddhist practitioners um, that you know that this this amounts to kind of a um you know, a watering down of Dying of this down. rich tradition mm-hmm. and uh, simplification, and uh, and and so there is that, and we have to we have to state that. It, at the same time, I I feel like what you're n- this this possibility you're naming uh, with integrity of the kind of a secular Buddhism um, also opens gives an, a new way to think about something. <clears throat> you know, we see many. In America, you know, many religious people of other traditions—Christians, Jews, uh, uh, Muslims—who um, are finding, um, who are incorporating, you know, aspects of Buddhist practice um, into our religious life, but obviously without the, <laughs> without without the religious aspects mm-hmm. of Buddhism. So, it's a, and I know that that would make many people uncomfortable for very profound reasons, um, and yet you are kind of presenting a scenario that explains that a little bit better, I think.
1: Yeah, I think we are certainly at a bit of a turning point here. Um, I'm actually quite uncomfortable uh, with the term spiritual technology. Um, I'm also uncomfortable with the idea that Buddhism is a science of the mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Both these terminologies, both these phrases are used quite, uh, I think, unthinkingly sometimes. Buddhism, to me, or Buddhist practice, uh, is really more akin to a practice of the arts. And that means a practice that engages the imagination, a practice that stimulates a certain creativity, and a practice that is open to the fundamental mystery and weirdness and strangeness of being here at all. Now, the very language of technology... Um, tends to think in terms of uh, solving problems. In other words, you identify a problem, you find a technique or technology that might address it, you figure out how to do it, you perform those tasks and the problem is solved. And that's very, very much uh, the frame uh, of our modern society. We are a technological society and I think there's a great risk uh, that Buddhism gets reduced to a kind of spiritual technology because in doing so, I think we are radically undermining uh, its potential as a a spiritual and as a cultural movement. We reduce it to a set of techniques. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So uh, I I share that discomfort and that uh, concern uh, very much. Um, Mm -hmm.
0: Go on. Yes. No, go on.
1: so, um, So what I think is required is that uh, mindfulness needs to somehow be in, be uh, contextualized within uh, an ethical and a philosophical framework that uh, takes uh, account of the uh, totality of what it means to be human. Um, I, I like, you know, my experience of people who come on my retreats, for example, who have done an eight-week MBSR mindfulness course, um, is that they discover that when they use mindfulness at the outset as just a technique for solving a problem in their lives,
2: yeah.
1: the very act of stopping and paying attention and becoming aware of what is going on rather than just reactively being pushed and impelled to think and act in certain ways is that it opens up new possibilities. Right. And they're drawn
2: mm-hmm.
1: to then maybe explore Buddhism or maybe to other larger, spiritual mm-hmm. traditions in a in a deeper way. Yeah. So... I think the criticism is a little bit simplistic, mm-hmm. uh, because the actual people who um, who are now drawn to these deeper questions of life, the mystery of life, through exposure to mindfulness, uh, is I think feeding into a much, hopefully richer sense of of culture, community, uh, engagement with the imagination, and so on, a more Profound ethical concern with what's going on, and that, of course, transcends any you know problem-solving technology. And so, I think the challenge of of, of people like myself who teach and write about uh, Buddhism is that we need to articulate the ethical and philosophical framework for which. People who are drawn to mindfulness practices can employ to give their practice a kind of three-dimensionality. Right. Uh, to 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 take it out of just the private exercise of a technique.
0: Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I would never say Buddhism is a spiritual technology, but I, I mean, I do think M- MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, um, or mindfulness, the way it's applied. It, I mean, I think the 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 dynamic or the the phenomenon is is taking. What I do think you could call a spiritual technology, mm-hmm. and and but I also and I see what you're saying about technology is something that is the solution to a problem. But I actually think the way we we live with technology, you know, our mm. technology is a living thing, and it's kind of interwoven, and it is dynamic, and it evolves. Um, to me, you know, that's what I'm talking about. These very specific mm. practices that that. But you're right. And what you're describing, I think, is actually the, par- the the paradox of the irony of kind of the spiritual, not religious phenomenon in general. That when – if people really do begin to develop spiritual lives that they hadn't had before by whatever means, um, it, it so often leads if, – if there's depth to it, it so often leads to being drawn towards – these experiences that that mm-hmm. religious traditions carry forward in time of, as you say, ritual, you know, imagination, ritual, community.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, so I see mindfulness, let's say M- MBSR, yeah. it opens a door. Mm-hmm. People will, you know, go through that door or not. They'll take it further or not. Um, but um, my sense, I'm rather perhaps more optimistic about... Uh, how uh, something that might start out as what looks like uh, a technique uh, for solving a problem, when it's applied to a human being, and when it's applied to the very core of that human being's conscious experience of life, um, we're not machines. Uh, We are sensitive creatures with questions and anxieties and concerns and fears. And mindfulness somehow opens up a space in the midst of that deep Uh, human silence Mm. and that I feel um, and I know this from many many people who are now drawn to Buddhist and uh, let's say more or a secular Buddhist approach uh, is that it opens up questions that they've either ignored or not really paid much attention to and uh, that space that is opened up uh, allows such questions to come to the surface Mm. allows a life to be reconsidered and um, so I'm quite optimistic, really, uh, about MBSR. I, I, I do think it captures something quite uh, central to what the Dharma is about. It's, it's quite remarkable in a way that mindfulness is not some marginal aspect of Buddhism, some sort of afterthought or something that's only been practiced in some obscure monastery in Mongolia. It's right there at the core of the Buddhist earliest teaching. It's hmm. one of the elements of the Eightfold Path. So it's it's something very central to the Buddhist tradition that has been applied in, in our secular uh, settings, and to that degree, I think it does implicitly somehow resonate with the values that it has traditionally been embedded in.
0: Yeah. And actually, I had I wanted to read. Um, some language from your 1989 book, um, "The Faith to Doubt," which is a wonderful book, um, uh-huh. which really gets at that notion of questions. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I just want to I just want to read it because it's beautiful. But then just it's and I think it's a wonderful way to kind of come back to where we started. Um, the way of the Buddha is a living response to a living question. Yet, whenever it has become institutionalized, its vital response has become a well-formulated answer. The seemingly important task of preserving a particular set of question, set of answers often causes the very questions which gave rise to the answers to be forgotten. Then the lucid answers Buddhism provides are cut off from the stammering voice that asks the questions, mm. which is such a such a an incisive analysis of what of the. The 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 problem, uh, what we do with religion in general, but but as something that I think modern people are acutely aware of and working yeah. with.
1: No, I think that's right. It's interesting. It's it's, <laughs> I think that's the somewhat some one of the opening pages of the book. I think that statement, um, yeah. And it's in it's always I find strange to hear myself quoted back yeah. because I wrote that book. Know, more than twenty five years ago, but I would say it in exactly the same way today.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, that is a thread that I think continues to run through and and animate what I'm doing. Um, and I do think people are uh, you know are very sensitized to these questions. Um, and yet we often in our culture don't really have a, a clearly formulated uh, and expressed language or uh, you know, or cultural forms, as it were, that allow us to speak that language. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of taboo, in some ways, too, against these things. Um, so I see Buddhism really not as I'm not interested, really, in uh, in establishing Buddhism as another religion in this country. I think really it uh, its its reach is probably far greater than that. And as you say, it's something that you can be a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew or a An atheist, and these practices uh, are just as uh, as applicable, just as uh, accessible, just as uh, fruitful, no matter what your your sort of belief frame might be.
0: It's 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 also it's fascinating that somehow it all that you know we continually, as much as we're we were were talking about secular Buddhism and. and it also also always cir- circles back to these layers of mystery um, you know yeah. this is how you said it in Buddhism without beliefs questions that probe ever deeper into what is still unknown
1: <laughs> yes no that's right yes exactly well I, of course i say exactly it's what i wrote <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: right i i um i just i, I want to ask you just finally this was this is also from buddhism without beliefs since since death alone is certain and the time of death uncertain what should I do? Mm. Right, you know. I think so. You you are bringing the 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 way Buddhist tradition has grappled with the the ancient human question back back to that question: What does it mean to be human, and and how do we want to live mm. without the 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 promise of something beyond this life? Um, and you you said so again: Since death alone is certain, and the time of death uncertain, what should I do? You wrote, over time, such meditation penetrates our primary sense of being in the world at all. And I, I wondered if you would speak as we close just about, in a, more, in a very concrete way, whatever that means, you know, yesterday or today, about how this observation, this, this questioning penetrates, you know, ordinary life, you know, the, an ordinary day in the world, your primary sense of being in the world at all.
1: Well, the meditation on death that uh, you've just read out is actually an adaptation of a, of a Tibetan uh, reflection on mortality.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, as a young man, um, I did this practice daily. Uh, I found of all the Tibetan practices I did, it was the one that was most life-changing. To the extent that today, I find that my sense of being in the world is, is deeply infused Uh, with uh, an awareness of how this may be my last day on earth. And these reflections on death uh, are not in the remotest sense uh, morbid or gloomy. The weird paradox is that the more you ask yourself that question, death is certain, its time is uncertain, what should I do? This brings you back to a very vivid uh, sense that you're alive. It intensifies the sense of aliveness in terms of how you see the colors, uh, the shapes, the leaves, the flowers, the whatever impacts you visually, or from the ears to the nose to the tongue to the body to the mind. It, it is a kind of intensifier of being alive, a kind of almost a, a celebration um, of being here at all. And that is infused uh, not only with a sense of wonder, but also with a sense of possibility, a sense of responsibility, that in what you say, think, do, this may be your final legacy uh, Mm. on this earth. That, to me, is where this uh, reflection uh, leads me. And it's with me, I wouldn't say every single minute of every single day. I also have moments in which I'm not particularly <laughs> proud of how I speak or act or think. But broadly speaking, I find myself constantly returning to what's implicit in that question. And that has made my life, uh, I think, very full. Um, I feel great, I, I'm deeply grateful for the practices that this tradition has brought me. And I very much uh, hope that others too will find uh, value. In these ideas and it will allow their lives too to flourish
0: well thank you so much this has been really wonderful i so enjoyed um getting into your writing and um i know this will be very meaningful for people to hear so thank you. I hope
1: so, Krista. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me on your on your show about which I've heard so much.
0: <laughs> well, we'll uh,
1: I feel very honoured.
0: <laughs> well, we will, um, we will, you'll we'll communicate. I, I'm not sure when we'll be putting this on the air, but you'll hear. You'll have plenty of advance notice, and you'll know oh, when it's great. going up. Yeah. Good. Okay. Thank you okay. so much. Yeah.
1: Thank you, Krista. Yeah. All the best.
0: Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.